And welcome to Comic Talks with Comics is always the top of our discussion. My name is Brandon. And I'm Mary. And today we are starting a new passion project of Mary and I's. Um, my, or was it, we are doing a segment that we feel not just only allows us to explore comics a little bit more in depth, but allows us to focus on something we both love, and that's history. Outside comics, we are both history fanatics. Um, Mary, maybe tell the fans a little bit about your history through, or uh, your history through history, I was going to say. Um, your What was it? Why you love history so much and your background in it? Um, so I have a degree in history. Um, my college didn't really let us specialize, but I did my thesis on um, 18th century American history. My passion is disability medicine. Um, and so the history of that, but um, more generally, I've also worked on a World War II oral history project focusing on the American home front. I've worked in multiple archives. I used to work at George Washington's Mount Vernon. Um, I volunteered with Living History Museums. Um, it's a lot of fun. Um, 20th century isn't necessarily my cup of tea. Um, I tend to focus more on the 18th and 19th centuries, but it is fun to dip my toe into um, 20th century, especially with what we're doing um, this week with DC's The New Frontier. Yes. Um, what was it? I'm not as clever as that, but I, I'm majoring <laughs> in history. I'm majoring actually in U.S. history. Um, it is something that's been a passion project of mine, too, because of the fact being I come from a military family. It is something that is somewhat not, I, I guess I'm going to say it's more, it was more drilled into me to know the history about different things, different, the different branches, everything like that. And even though I have a degree in IT, it was more the degree I wanted to do something I loved. So I pursued my passion in history to become a teacher in, you know, in the United States history. Um, I'm a big World War II guy where I focus around most of my studies from and the Civil War and um, it's two of my main areas I focus around the most. Um, but like Mary said, we are covering for our first section or our first segment of this um, wondrous um, project we're working on is DC, the new frontier. Um, the goal, like we said before we start, is to teach kids and teach people that there are more in comic books than just men in tights. This is... This story really dives deep into um, history, along with the mainly the 19, pretty much after World War II to about 1960, 1961. Um, there is a lot that happens in the storyline. There is um, segments, which we will tell you um, are not for kids. Um, it's very gruesome. It is very explicit. Um, so we will warn you guys when those scenes do come up um, that we'll give you guys a heads up. Um, like I said, there's, our purpose is to show people that you can learn history through the pages of a comic and that even though it's not exactly precise for the most part, it's going to tell you what needs to, or what you need to know. The broad strokes that will give you a better understanding of history than necessarily like watching a movie or, um, that can at least help get people more interested in learning about the past by going, hey i didn't know about that and then having a desire to look deeper into it absolutely and i think this was just the perfect story to start with because we are in justice league month and there is a lot of history packed into this and so let me go let us give you a little bit of history about this story um it was written and drawn by the late great darwin cook um, one of my favorite artists i've said it many times one of my favorite writers in all of comics um and it was colored by dave stewart um 
This is a six-part miniseries that was released from March 2004 to November 2004. And pretty much the story allows us to go back into the Silver Age of comics. This was when we started to get to see the first appearance of Hal, Barry, so on and so forth, Martian Manhunter, which you'll find in the story, those are your three main characters. It's Martian Manhunter, Hal, and Flash. It's nothing to do with the main trinity. It's They are in it, but they're not big parts of it. Um, and pretty much, like we said, it takes us back through the 1950s and the 1960s and following, or pretty much it allows us to see the justly form for a common cause during all these history events that's been occurring. Um, so the subjects that we'll be covering for sure in here, are what's covered in the um, DC, the new frontier. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the effects after World War II, what was happening after it. Um, we get that through the losers, which was a World War II unit. Um, and we kind of see what they're going after and everything like that. We're going to talk about the Cold War. We're going to talk about the Korean War, McCarthyism, and the space race. Um, we're going to go into the civil rights movement, um, where we talk about John Henry, um, who pretty much is the character or the vigilante that goes around, um, what was it, trying to disturb the clans that are around there, along with the folklore that's around him. Um, along with that, we're going to go... Um, to feminism, and we're also going to be talking about some celebrities and pop culture. That's going to be a small section, but it is something that we will discuss. Um, and then, of course, we'll end it with the famous speech that ends the story, um, which is the New Frontier JK or JFK speech. So if we're ready, let's go ahead and jump right into it. Um, I'll be picking up the first one. We're going to talk about World War II. Um, mainly where you get World War II from is more the first chapter of the story. This is where you get the losers. Um, the losers, like we said, is a group of military, or it was pretty much a squad um, during World War II that pretty much took special op missions, everything like that. And some of the parts I picked up from in this storyline was, first off, you have the OSS. Now, the OSS was a real group during World War II. Um, they were called the Office of Strategic Services. Um, this was the first independent U.S. intelligence agency. Um, it only existed through the course of the war and a bit after because in 1947, the CIA was established. So it pretty much was no longer. It kind of started closing down, but they still did some missions every so often. Um, this part of the story allows us to see what happened during and or shortly after the end of World War II, which we will get to that point here in a minute. Um, but the OSS is... Um, main job was to gather intelligence about their enemy. Um, they helped with helping resistance groups and sabotage enemy assets. Um, like I said, what I found interesting, though, is the fact that they weren't known to actually serve in the Pacific Islands. That was the weird part to me. Um, I, I'm not sure if my partner caught on to that part, but it was really... Well, I did. Yeah, my, um, my grandfather served in the Pacific in World War II, so I know a little bit about that theater of the war, even though it's Again, not my strongest suit. And I was like, ah, that's that's different. <laughs> if you know this one, who, why were they not allowed to operate? Oh, I, that one I don't know. It's because General Douglas MacArthur. He actually says this was his area and his area alone. That that sounds like him. Yeah, that's about him. <laughs> that's what I thought when I read that. Yeah, that sounds right. That, that's like, that's perfect. That's just understanding. Now, why were the losers out? And why were they taking this mission? It was to retrieve an access scientist. Um, of course, access had many scientists, why they were advanced in technology, everything like that. So 
course, after the events of World War II, what do you think we were doing? We wanted to, we were getting into the cold. And of course, we want to advance our technology, better technology, better assets, better weapons. You name it, we do it. And even the space race is a big part of this too. Um, yep. Operation it, Paperclip. Yep, exactly. And of course, it was a race to see who could get as many scientists as they could between not just us, but it's also between Russia as well. Um, so pretty much their operation is to retrieve a scientist that's been lost on a stranded island in the Pacific Ocean, um, along with rescuing the team that was transporting him, um, if there is any survivors at this point. Um, this is where we find Rick Flagg is on the island, and he's the only one to escape. The losers do risk their lives, and they all sacrifice themselves for the better good. Um, but there is so much information here because, it's like I said, this was actually something that did happen. It was after the events of World War II, um, pretty much helped fuel the third. These scientists pretty much helped fuel what we know as the Third Reich. Um, and not just the Third Reich, but also the Japanese Empire with Unit 731. Um, we were taking scientists not just from... Um, Nazi Germany, but also from Imperial Japan. Right. And there's, I'm going to cite something um, from a, from a magazine that I read and I don't usually do this, but it is something that's actually pretty interesting to read. And, and he kind of explains it really perfectly. Um, this is Danny Lewis, who's a journalist for Smithsonian um, magazine. Um, and he states in this, when it comes to scientists coming to the U S um, from nerve and disease agents to the feared and COVID at V1 and V2 rockets. Nazi scientists worked on an impressive arsenal. As the war came to a close in 1945, both America and Russia officials began scheming to get the technology for themselves. So it came to pass that 71 years ago today, 88 Nazi scientists arrived in the United States and were promptly put to work for Uncle Sam. This was such an interesting thing because I always wondered, it's like, how, like, were they just pretty much like, you would think you helped fuel the Third Reich. You help do this, and yet U.S. just brings them over here like nothing, kind of like a clean slate in some ways. For um, and they pardon them of all crimes. I, I think part of this, too, is that you can't really forget that a lot of policies that were used in Nazi Germany were inspired by American policies regarding race in the Jim Crow South. Yeah. Um, America didn't have clean hands either. <laughs> right. Um, and so... There, there is that that goes into this as well. It's not just the science that they're looking for. It's the willingness to overlook human rights abuses um, by the government in this period as well. You know, and like we said, this happens mostly in the first chapter of the story. Um, this is called Analog Heroes. Um, there is a little scene where Faraday is going over with Hal Jordan about some of the stuff that, some of this top secret stuff that Ferris Airspace has. And that's something I'm going to talk a little bit about um, later when we get in with the space race. Right, because there is some of it that we'll talk about the Nazi scientists coming over to America, or Nazi Germany scientists coming to America and helping them fuel them to this point where they're at now. But that's the main points I wanted to bring up from World War II. We figured this would be a quick little section. Um, and before we jump to Mary Quick Two with the feminist um, movement, I figure we talk about the pop culture situation quick too, because there is some hints to it. Um, it's called, I believe it's chapter five. Um, if I'm not mistaken here, let me just pull it up here. Yes. Chapter five, we're hinted to two, or was it pretty much we're hinted to two celebrities back during that time. Cassius Clay, 
was one of them. And Mary, can you tell the fans who Cassius Clay is? So Cassius Clay, I'm having to remember, he was a professional boxer. Um, you guys might know him by a different name. Um, I'm going to give you guys a hint. Um, he's famous for phrases involving butterflies and bees. Um, he is the absolutely incredible Muhammad Ali. Um, incomparable. There's really no one that compares to him, um, except in DC Comics. <laughs> yeah, that was like the weirdest matchup. When I, like, it makes sense because it's Wildcat and that was his profession, uh, or one of his things he loved to do was boxing. But it was just funny, and he. The sad thing is, they make Cassius lose, which sucked because I was just like, that yeah. to me would have been because this is Cassius Clay was during his early years in boxing before he changed his name to Muhammad Ali, everything like that. It was Cassius Clay that was his young name. He started boxing that way, and then turned it. I think it was in the late 1950s, if not 1960s, and then that's when he became Muhammad Ali. Um, it is. Uh, what was it? It was one of my favorite perks of that whole story. Um, if you do watch Justice League The New Frontier, which they did make the story into a movie, you do see that. They don't see him box as much other than on TV. But it's so interesting to see it because you see Cassius Clay. You see that and it's just that whole inspiration of history in this story. And that's why I love Darwin Cook's works as well because every story he does, he mix in that noir history vibe. And that's what I love about it. One of the other things you do see is a famous singer. Um, you guys know him as Frank Sinatra. Um, you do see the songs, one of his songs, I think it's uh, Fly Me to the Moon, being sung in the background at a, what was it? It was like a local casino before it's robbed by Captain Cold. Um, this is where we get the first introduction of Flash in the storyline, or Barry. So it is, it's a small section, but it's fun to kind of see some of the pop culture that was going on during that time frame um, being shown. So I'm going to turn it over to my partner. Um, she will be covering the feminist movement um, during yeah, that. So, um, and this is, this is one of those things where in the um, special for the new frontier, things are a little disappointing. Um, I'm not going to lie. There is a section in the special. Um, this is why a different writer um, should be noted. Um, that really sort of directly addresses second wave feminism, but it does it very poorly. Um, in fact, it reads as a parody of the feminist movement um, to the extent that there is Wonder Woman holding her breastplate that's on fire and men are still ogling at her. It's really bad. <laughs> um, um, and it shows, honestly, less progressive writing for both Black Canary and Wonder Woman in this comic from, from the 2000s than either of those characters received in the 1960s, which is pretty sad. Um, I feel like I don't have to explain how disappointing um, that is. But the rest of the comic is not this bad. <laughs> um, everything else outside of the special um shows a lot of hearkening back to the silver age of comics where we're starting to see these female characters being portrayed a lot stronger where we're really starting to see them be you know the heroes that we now know them to be um so throughout the new frontier we see especially um diana 
you know, Wonder Woman, her push to be taken seriously by the U.S. government. Um, there is a scene, hello to my cat, um, there is a scene where um, she is awarded a medal by the U.S. military for her eight, her actions um, throughout the Korean War. And when she tries to make a stand to say an opinion, she is pushed to the side, told to take a vacation, and essentially told that she's nothing. Um, and she doesn't take this lying down. Um, we also see her status as what is essentially the leader of, you know, the big three of Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. She is essentially the one who is in charge there. She's the one that's holding the other two accountable, keeping them in line, and essentially just keeping them in line with their own morals and values and reminding them, even Clark, you know, what is the American dream and how do we keep that in mind throughout this period. Um, what I really want to talk about, though, um, is Carol Ferris, um, who is one of my all-time favorite um, Silver Age hero um, characters who's introduced. Um, her relationship with Hal Jordan um, is remarkably similar to how it was written in the Silver Age in this comic, which is, I think it was my favorite thing. I talked to Brandon about this when he got my notes. I had, like, all caps underlined. <laughs> um, because their, their relationship dynamic in the Silver Age comics is just incredible. And you really do see that dynamic played out here, too, um, where Carol Ferris is without a doubt in charge of Ferris aircraft. There is no question about it. She is the boss. And she's going to take down anyone who disagrees with that. I love the scene, too. I think you brought up a good point. When Hal's being interviewed, um what was it to take the what was it the pilot position in ferris airspace and he goes well i never really figured a woman would be leading this and he goes and you got a problem with that and you know i just yeah, she is not going to tolerate yeah um any question about her leadership her authority any of it um and that's exactly what she's like in the silver age as well in these comics from the 60s and the 70s um and even further into this carol also very much holds her own in her relationship with Hal. Um, there is not really a moment between them that goes by where she is not reminding him that he is her employee. <laughs> um, she's like, you are cocky. That's fine. I'm still in charge of you. Um, and she holds her own against the United States military. She holds her own um, in every possible situation that she's placed into. Um, even later on in the story where we're seeing her... Um, be more emotional and we're seeing her be more you know what we might expect a woman to be portrayed as in 1950s and 60s comics when we're seeing her be more like the oh no my boyfriend's going off to fight something she's angry she's not nice. scared um she's pissed and she's not pissed because he's doing it she's pissed because he didn't tell her <laughs> and um i think that's the defining moment there in their relationship is that um, she is more concerned with being treated as an equal than she is necessarily with anything else. And that's one of my favorite things about Carol, um, not just in this comic, but in general, is that she is determined to make herself an equal in all things. Um, something about Golden, um, in, uh, I mean, Silver Age, um, Hal Jordan and Carol Ferris, that didn't make it into this comic because it comes later, it comes in um, in like the early 70s, I'm pretty sure is when it starts, but Carol becomes paralyzed from the waist down um, in Silver Age comics. And there's some incredible moments with her and Hal's relationship where she is treated as a priority, um, where her opinions and thoughts on her own disability 
become what Hal has to think of her disability because it's her body and not his. Um, and that's a really poignant moment for me in those comics. Um, in the Green Lantern, Green Arrow crossover, we even see Hal prioritizing fixing Carol's wheelchair and making sure that her wheelchair is caught when they're in peril so that she still has mobility rather than you know trying to catch just her. He's also focusing on her mobility aids. And that sort of dynamic we see, it's not in this comic because again, Carol is able-bodied in this comic, but we do see that that kind of Carol is in charge of Carol and it's Hal's job to make sure that she can continue to be mm -hmm. um, is sort of how their dynamic is still played out. One of, um, the, one of the things too, I'd like to go back to Wonder Woman too, um, the way Darren Cook draws her and the way that yes. she stands above, even taller than she's, Superman. She's and so much taller than them, um, which is just another one of those amazing things. Um, every female hero that was, sorry, my cat is trying to steal my laptop charger. Um, <laughs> every hero that we see, every female hero that we see, every female character that we see who fights at all, they're drawn with muscles as well is another thing and that's that's a huge difference between the rest of this comic and the special as well is that in the special they're caricatures they're all drawn like betty boop um <laughs> and the rest of it they're there you see them with muscles you see them with you know relatively natural waistlines um it, it is it's it's like i said it's like i think darwin cook went in with the it's like we said, we know how he is as a person because there are many times where he has threatened to quit the comic, um, especially yes. during New Frontier when he didn't get his way. And I think that was some of it. I believe one of them was Wonder Woman's design. I think a lot of people did not like that. And he pretty much stated, it's not your decision, it's mine. And I think she and, needs to be taller. Yeah. And, and um, also his portrayal of Lois Lane. Um, is another really huge part of this comic. Lois isn't in the comic a lot, um, but when she is, her presence is known, um, which is not just, you know, the best way to write Lois Lane, um, but it, it is just one of those very telling moments uh, because Lois is a reporter, um, which in the 1950s and 60s is an extremely male-dominated field. Um, there are very few women reporters who are able to get serious stories in this point in time um we see lois as a war correspondent during the korean war which wasn't really a thing that happened um these are positions that are incredibly hard for women to break into in this time period um and we're not just seeing her have these positions we're also seeing her you know continue to be feminine and we're seeing her especially um when she's working as a Korean War correspondent, she's using her feminine guile, I think is the wording she uses with Jimmy, um, to get what she wants in Korea, um, to essentially use it to her advantage that she's pretty and these men haven't seen a woman in a long time. It is something, that's why I said, I did like Lois's little, even though she's not in it, every scene you knew she made an impact. And yes. one of one of the scenes that still stands out to me to this day is when Superman's thought to be dead at this point. And seeing her, how hard she was trying to stay brave on the phone to still show courage to inspire people just like Superman did. But in the long run, she still breaks down and it just shows you how much of an impact she has on 
a lot of people, but even then, when something close to her is gone, she's yes. vulnerable as well. And in that scene, too, um, I think one of the things that really stands out is the fact that Jimmy has to yell at the camera crew to stop filming because they're trying to use her grief as a way, as like a spectacle um, to further the story, right. um, which is the opposite of the image that Lois wants to portray. And that also really speaks to women's experience in the press um, in this time period. So it was just a really fantastic look at these characters not just as heroes and not just as you know these mythic characters that we know them as who have these decades long history in comics but just showing the humanity of women care female characters in this time period um and in some ways portraying them a little bit better than they were in the silver age or just pulling directly from their silver age dynamics with the men around them it's just very good to me i enjoyed it a lot it, it that's why I said I really did enjoy the way because this again it's like we said I, I know we talk a lot about Darwin Cook and his passion for this project but he is so passionate about the Silver Age and that was what he wanted to do and seeing like you said with Carol Ferris and bringing her back to the way she is in the Silver Age comics yes I love that and same thing with Wonder Woman same thing with you know of course those and Lois it's just so fantastic the way that he writes them that even though they're strong, you can still sympathize with them. You can still understand their, what was it? Even, you know, like it, it's just really, it does speak volumes for him. And I thought- And were... there there are other female characters that are less well-known, which is why I'm not talking about them in this segment that we also see as similarly strong. Mm -hmm. um, and he shows them in the exact same way that he portrays, portrays the male characters that are with them. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about them when we get to the space race. Um, everything is sort of tying back to the space race in this comic. Um, but just everything that's involved with that, it's very apparent um, how much effort he put into showing them as equals throughout all of this. But yeah, I think this is a good bridging point to, like you said, in, other than just a space race, we were involved in something else shortly after the effects of World War II, um, and we're talking about the Cold War. Um, Mary, you want to kind of give a brief little summary of what the Cold War was between? Yeah, so I mean, for, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Cold War, it can be an extremely complicated topic. Um, so the two superpowers that really rise to prominence um, following the Second World War are the USSR and the United States of America. And obviously the USSR is being led um, in this time period by Joseph Stalin um, and in America through a multiple multitude of different presidents. Um, <laughs> there's, it lasts a long time. Um, the, Cold War, I think it's the Cold War doesn't end uh, for decades. Um, throughout the Cold War, um, we're both the US and the USSR have access to nuclear weapons. Um, so we are essentially in a state of what's called MAD or mutually assured destruction um, should nuclear weapons be used against either country. Um, so neither country is trying to wage war with each other, but they are um, in a lot of different ways. Um, some of these are proxy wars, um, such as the Korean War, or in some cases, the Vietnam War can be considered in some ways a proxy war, um, as the US is trying to stop the spread of communism in the East, and the Russians are, and the USSR is trying to spread communism. Uh, but this leads to a lot of issues, um, which I'm going to let Brandon talk about within the United States. Yeah, so one of the biggest things, um, of course, um, it's like we said, we're going to get to the space race. 
We're going to get to the Korean War, which we're involved in. And of course, it does lead to Vietnam shortly after. But of course, we're not going to cover that because it's not really mentioned in the story. Um, the main focus that we're going to where I'm going to focus around is going to be McCarthyism. Now, McCarthyism is it was a very drastic, very widespread paranoia that was spread throughout the United States during this time. It's mainly focused around in 1950 to 1954. Um like we said, it caused massive fear and paranoia. Um, it was spearheaded by the House of Un-American Activities Committee, or HUAC, and Senator Joe McCarthy from Wisconsin. Um, and at this time, he was actually really considered to be a right-wing Republican at this point. Um, and I know that's not something we usually do talk about here, but it does speak volumes to why this was happening and why he was the one spearheading. Um, McCarthyism, pretty much in a summary, is a witch hunt. It was to sort out people that might be or have connections to communism or be a communist. Um, pretty much, pretty much, I guess, a good way to do this. Imagine living in a country where you're forced to stand in front of an American government panel, having them question you about your political views and accusing you of being a traitor or telling them that who might be, or pretty much asking you to tell them who might be sympathizers towards the Communist Party. And if you didn't cooperate with federal officials, um, you were you were facing jail time. You could even be blacklisted. Um, we're to the point where you lose your job. And these effects from this alone lasted over a decade. It was massive. And, and by um, trying to weed out um, communists, what that really entailed was, do you disagree with me politically? Yeah, it pretty much was. Um, if you don't a lot like of it. these people were not communists. They just had different political opinions or in some cases, notable cases, even um, with like scientists that worked at Fort Detrick. Um, it, did you agree with the use of germ warfare in Korea? And if you said no, you would be taken care of. Yeah, it was it was a lot of stuff that happened, and you know, pretty much it, it, the the main focus first off was to go after any people that had influential jobs, anybody who had an influence over people or anything. So of course, the first thing you would think of they go after is Hollywood, and the reason they go after writers, directors, actors, you name it, any position Hollywood was not safe. Um, they would force people who worked in the film industry to reject left-wing politic or political beliefs and forcing them to testify against people who might be sympathizers of the Communist Party. Some people did cooperate in order to keep their jobs and hold their positions. Um, some didn't and pretty much led them to being blacklisted, losing their jobs, or being facing jail time. Um, these, of course, then spreaded um, past Hollywood and went towards academics. Um, teachers, professors, principals, deans, you name it, they pretty much were targeting them. Also, some other areas were labor union activists. Um, and then it actually spearheaded to the government. And they actually started going after people, including um, it kind of targeted the State Department, the military, the Treasury, and even the White House. Um, it was pretty much a massive, chaotic witch hunt um, throughout this whole story. And Pretty much, it came to a close. McCarthy began to start losing support um, for this. Um, a lot of people were not for it after some time. Um, and the fact that some people were accused and prosecuted for being communist sympathizers, and they came out to be false claims. 
Yes. It, so pretty much it was the whole thing of he lost his support because they didn't know if he could re- people could really trust him. And it got to the point where, are you just doing this just to do it? Or it was pretty much like a tattletale session. Like, you tell me who it is. And some of these people, when you really think about it, that's pretty much what it was. Like, you won't get in trouble if you tell me who it is. And that's pretty much what it was. It was just like a he said, you know, she said, this guy, this person. It was was chaotic. And it was a massive paranoia thing because nobody was safe in this situation. Yes, um, Arthur Miller's The Crucible, which I think, um, at least in my state, is required reading um, in ninth grade history, in, in ninth grade English classes, is based on, obviously, the witch hunt in Salem, Massachusetts in the 17th century, but it's also heavily inspired by McCarthyism, as the playwright was suspected of communist sympathizing. Um, All-encompassing. It was such a massive thing. So the question is now, how does this relate to DC, the new frontier? This plays a huge part of it. And this is why we're going to kind of go over some of the points that, um, so if, what was it? There is a scene um, when they're kind of going over the events after the first chapter um, of the story, where they're kind of going over where the world has gone to. And one of the quotes I'm going to quote here, um, it says, on it's on page 43 of the black label version um so if you guys have it please follow along if not totally understand it is a scene that's still in normal and everything like that um it states on the home front congressional hearings sought out to root out communist infiltrators and other citizens guilty of un-american activities the mass adventurers were branded outlaws and subversives um faced with public unmasking the justice society retired Many others followed suit, and there's more stuff that comes out with Iris West pretty much stating a little bit more, and we will get into that because she does describe it a little bit better of what happened, but this is a time, and I know, Mary, you'll agree with me too here, is that most of these characters are Justice Society members, and this is where you see Alan Scott, Jay Garrick, Black Canary, Dr. Midnight, Fate, Hawkman, and um, Wildcat walking with their heads down. That is like one of the one of my favorite panels. I don't know why, but it shows you that whole thing of what McCarthyism really was. And that scene where we talked about Cassius Clay that has Wildcat in it, we do see Ted Grant be like, man, I wish my pal Jay was here. Mm -hmm. And we do sort of see the JSA breaking apart because them being together looks to be a sign of this leftist organizing that the government would be looking for exactly and for anybody who does not know who ted grant is that is wildcat so he is one of these heroes that is for pretty much forced to retire because they don't want their identities revealed um but it shows you how much the government handled and it was the fact that it was something weird now i'm going to state what iris west states because this is where you get most of this information and i think this is perfect because again iris west another character another female in the story that does have influence and does have, but this again, her newspaper article was typical. It was something that you would see during this time frame because it was the whole thing of, I'm going to scare you to get that's media. That was what their purpose was. So I'm going to state a little bit. It's called Washington Declares War on the Mystery Men, and it's in the DC and the New Frontier. It's about a three page panel, um, but it states um, when it came to make an example. Um, HUAC, or of course the House of Un-American Activities, um, wisely targeted the largest, most visible collective, the Justice Society of America. Months of public baiting and federal pressure to appear before the congressional hearing went unanswered by the venerable 
JSA until the president took himself took public airtime on September 14th in order to pretty much pretty much ordered um, the Justice Society to support its country and make itself to available Congress immediately. After reading a list of allegations that range to from inaugurable or inarguable to absurd, um, Congress demanded the JSA unmask and reveal their identities and take and to take an oath of loyalty to the current administration. The JSA, however, had come prepared with an alternative of their own. They simply vanished. In a statement issued the following day, they refused to recognize Congress authority, but as patriotic Americans, they refused to break federal law. Henceforth, they were retiring. Um, they set a remarkable precedent, and then the president or the preceding weeks, dozens of mass adventurers followed suit. That was such a powerful thing that I got from this. And to see that, you know what, it just it shows you how so many heroes, so many people lost respect for their country at that point. And it is a sad thing, but it's the whole thing of I don't want to be, you know, vigilante. I don't want to be the person against the law. But at the same time, I'm not going to do what you asked me to at this point. Um there's also, again, this is an issue too, um, still actually at the um, casino with um, Ted Grant and them, mm -hmm. but um, Oliver Queen, who in the Silver Age was not without precedence from the Golden Age, but um, Denny O'Neill really reinvented his character into um, this raging leftist. <laughs> um, and we, we see... There, there. He, um, Oliver Queen Green Arrow, is standing with a bunch of other heroes, and they're talking. And then um, Colonel Flag, I believe it is, um, approaches them. And the very next panel, where you see the heroes, Green Arrow was gone. Yeah. <laughs> and um, someone says, "Oh, I'm sure it wasn't the company." And um, you, it was. Um, and the, the the best part about that to me is that Oliver Queen never backs down from any altercation, um, ever. Um, so that is really a sign of how bad the McCarthyism was to me, um, where even he is not willing to engage in an altercation with a member of the U.S. military. It is something, too, I want to bring up, too, is something that I noticed. Um, they never call them heroes. The only time they call no. them heroes is the people who register, which we'll get to that here in a second. They call them adventurers or vigilantes. So it is so interesting to see how the media actually confronts them as oh look they're going against the law so they're not really heroes so that's just how the media played and it that, that's that's also another really interesting thing is that there is a long-standing tradition in green arrow comics where even if we're looking in like the secret origins files mm -hmm. that their occupations for the arrow fam are listed not as heroes but as adventurers right. still well mm -hmm. into the 2000s um and that's still part of that lore um, I'm not sure if that is necessarily as true for other heroes or not, because um, I, I happen to own the 2000s Green Arrow Secret Origins, which is why I know this off the top of my head. But. <laughs> it, it is something that's so interesting, because not only that, there's another big hero that does retire, and it's one of the main characters. Or I call it a quick retirement, because he didn't last very long, and he went back into action. Um, it's The Flash, Barry Allen. Yeah. Um, and the fact that he actually states in a little television interview, he pretty, it wasn't an, even an interview. He just went in there and pretty much rushed he, in. He stole, he stole the camera for yeah. a few seconds. Yeah. And he pretty much states that he did this because of Jay Garrett and how popular, how much of a hero he really was and how much of an influence he had on him. And yet people turn their backs on him. Because mind you, Faraday, who is one of the government officials, um, sets up a pretty much a trap to capture him. 
and they pretty much state your government property now. Flash barely escapes. And it shows you that they know this. They're going to find ways to attack you. And it does happen. And that's what happened. It, and no, it's not as far as that. But it does show you what the government would have done to get what they wanted. And that was okay. a big scene. Um, there are some other points I'm going to bring up really quickly. Um, of course, there is hints to some heroes registering with the U.S. government. Um, I like to bring up a point from page 44, that same thing, the Black Label version. Um, others were simple-minded patriots, happy to wave so long and go peddle their papers. It is such an interesting quote because so many heroes, but you find out only half a dozen has registered with the government. Um, two popular ones, of course, is, and we find this in the Iris West paper, is Superman and Wonder Woman. And then Shazam is supposedly hinted to that we've gotten. Um, but the other three aren't mentioned on who's registered with the government. Um, but it shows you that there were people who wanted to keep the peace and keep their jobs, be that person, and especially in somebody like Superman and Wonder Woman who have such an inspiration on people to be the one. And I always found that interesting that they put those two on it. And of course, Batman being the one that's a vigilante and yes. still is that way and it's so interesting of course it leads to my last point where there were still heroes that acted outside the law um it, it does state on the page 44 of the black label a few rare few displayed the cunning and conviction to evade capture um it also states in page 52 um of the same book um the federal response has been swift and decisive last month's bill passed unanimously making vigilanteism a federal offense akin to treason only those registered with the FBI and cleared by Congress are allowed to legally operate in the governments in, in government-sanctioned ways. It is such a good... Um, also, too, um, we had talked about this a little bit before we started filming, but in the special, we see that the president knows Superman's secret identity and asks about his mother, um, which is just another example of the oversight and the outreach of the government at this time. Um, there's this joke that I've seen a lot um, with the rise of virtual assistants. Um, it's like people in the 1950s, oh no, I can't say that the government is wiretapping me, which yes. Um, whereas today people will be like, hey, wiretap, do you have a recipe for pancakes? And um, it's just, it really does go to show how little that sort of joke about wiretapping during the McCarthy era isn't a joke. Um, if you could possibly have anything worth knowing, if you lived near a military base, if you lived near a laboratory, if you worked at a university on any level, um, down to the janitors, like, you would be observed. Right. It, it It is a very interesting point. And that's why I said, like, the the main heroes we see, um, we, we see a few that are disobeying. Of course, the flashes. That is one, a big one that he is acting outside the law. Um, that's one of my favorite panels, too, is when he finally admits to Iris that he is the flash. And I just love that <laughs> Iris goes, I know I'm a reporter. You know, that's what was one of my favorite scenes of the whole story. But not only that, we get to see um, our man, which is a Justice Society member, um, act outside the law. That was one of my favorite things is you don't see him in that panel of heroes walking in with their head hanging down low. He's on his own. 
He will not take no for an answer, but he falls to his death when four officials were going after him for, him. for a federal warrant against him. Um, we did. We do talk about our man um, in a different segment. Um, yeah. If you would like to know more about him, um, but... it it is a character that it, it, you wouldn't think out of all the characters of all people he would be the one that does it. But he does. He goes against. He does, him. yeah. And um, that I mean, that is very in character for him. It's just why pick him right. um, for this story? I think is the big question. But... And then, of course, the main one being Batman. Um, Batman is acting outside the law. Um, there is a scene in the what was it in the Irish West article that she writes that she states that Superman pretty much fights Batman and. Batman narrowly escapes by throwing an explosive device that had some gas in it, which we know that's probably kryptonite gas to make him get away from him. And he's still at large. So meaning he is now a criminal. Anywhere he goes, he is now found a criminal. But I love that he hides in Gotham of all things. You know people are going to help him escape and do what he needs to do to do his job. Um, that's what I love about it too, is it shows that some communities are willing to work with their heroes more than others. And that is something with Batman that I loved. Um, that ends my McCarthyism notes um, right away. So I'm going to turn it over to my partner to speak about the Korean War and then jump right into the space race. Yeah. So, I mean, this really does lead us into the Korean War, um, especially when we're looking at news correspondence, which I'm going to touch on in a little bit, um, specifically about war correspondence. Um, but the Korean War is really something, um, it is in many ways America's forgotten war. Um, it is overshadowed very often in conversations about 20th century history by World War II, which precedes it, and then the Vietnam War, which comes later. Um, and also there's just so many other movements that are happening in America at this time that tend to supersede talks about the Korean War. For most people, um, when you say the Korean War, what comes to mind immediately is the TV show MASH, um, which is an excellent um, vehicle to learn about um, Korean War history, especially through the lens of medics. Um, fantastic show if you haven't seen it um the book is also pretty okay would recommend avoiding the movie but that's just personal taste <laughs> um and so i'm going to talk a little bit about what the korean war is first um before i really get into how it's portrayed in this comic um so the korean war is a conflict between the dprk so the democratic people's republic of korea and the republic of korea um DPRK is communist, um, Republic of Korea is not. Um, and it was fought between 1950 and 1953 with US involvement. So the DPRK was being backed by the USSR and the Republic of Korea was being backed by the states. Um, again, this is one of those proxy wars in the Cold War between the two global, global superpowers. Again, in our effort to avoid mutually assured destruction through the use of nuclear weapons for the two countries to directly attack each other. Um, the DPRK had invaded um, what we now know as South Korea, so the Republic of Korea, um, in an effort to spread communist rule throughout that region. Um, the US backed South Korea to prevent that and the USSR backed North Korea to encourage it is essentially what's happening here. Um, and it was supposed to be, <laughs> like many of these proxy wars, a very quick in and out. Um, it does not happen. <laughs> it lasted three years for a reason. And the sad thing about that is the one war we always say is a tie. Because nobody won that war, nobody lost it. It pretty much was a settlement. But even then, that's how we know North Korea and South Korea the way we know it today is yes. that, that war. 
and the treaties from 1953 are the ones that are still in place. Right. Right. Um, what was it? Now, the New Frontier focuses on the Korean War in about three different ways. Um, and these three ways are things that we see a lot of times with media surrounding the Korean War. Um, and they're also things that you really do sort of tend to see in war media in general that is being made now, as opposed to war media that is being made in the 1950s and 60s. Um, and these three themes are really the idealization of military service as compared to the traumatic reality of military service. This is especially big in the post-World War II era because World War II was such, you know, a clear-cut, clear-cut good versus evil um, conflict where the states were on not just the winning side, but also the side against mass genocide. Um, and this really sort of brings in this, this coupled with the culture around not talking about trauma, our lack of understanding of concepts like PTSD, leads to um, people not understanding what war is um, and propaganda films surrounding war as well. We're in every movie theater. <laughs> it was part of the newsreels that you saw before you uh, watched your actual feature film. And that's demonstrated through Martian Manhunter. And, and, Hunter. and it is one of my favorite parts because it's the whole scene where you see him laughing at an alien. Now, mind you, that's not the scene we're talking about, but that's just the, how I remember this scene. Um, and the Go ahead. Yeah, Sorry. and for those of you who have seen Captain America, the first Avenger, um, you actually not only see Steve Rogers watching um, some of these reels, but you also see him making these fake war scenes um, to convey news to the American public, um, which is why the Vietnam War is such a culture shock in so many ways, because it was the first time we got news footage really from the front um, onto American televisions instead of approved footage. One of the things, too, while we were on that note, too, is like, we, of course, we get to see like the challengers of the unknown in that scene where we get to see their news props, everything. We get to see things from the Korean War, so on and so forth. But one of the other things I always loved is how each movie started with a cartoon as well, um, yeah. most of the time. And that time, what I love about it, too, it's the only thing you see in color, and it's Superman, the original cartoon. And that was just a fun little snippet because a lot of people forget there was little shorts that were shown, there was news, and then there was your feature presentation. Yes. Uh, and that's what I loved about that. So I will turn it back over to my partner. But yeah. while on that, I was like, let me talk about that really quick. <laughs> um, the, one of the other themes that we have is um, the refusal to use lethal force in enemy engagements. This is shown in this comic through Hal Jordan. Um, and then also war reporting has become such a huge topic of discussion when it comes to looking at war. Um, and that's from a social history aspect. So I'm gonna start, we're gonna talk a little bit more about the idolization. There is a quote in this comic that touches on a little bit of what I had discussed. It says, during World War II, we knew we were right and we've always just assumed we were right ever since. Now, this is a quote that isn't actually said in regard to the Korean War in the comic, but it does fit the narrative. Um, because what we see is how Jordan joining the military because his father was in the military. Um, which is a key part of his character, right? We see how idolizing the military, we see him idolizing the Air Force, but he joins in peacetime with no intention of fighting. Um, and then he doesn't have a choice because he's an enlisted man when the war starts. I, and, it? go ahead. 
Oh, I was going to mention a great point too, because I know Mary and I have talked about this before, but it's kind of like a sense of a story of Desmond Doss. Uh, a little bit. Um, and and I'm about, story, actually about uh, to touch yeah. on that a little bit. No worries. Go right ahead. Yeah. So um, how has this thing um, where, and in his words, it's his self-professed um, righteous posturing and moral codes versus something he had never considered before, which is survival. Um, and this is really shown, um, we see in the first few pages, this is the concept of lethal force. Um, so in an excerpt from a report filed by Colonel East Morgan, United States Air Force regarding Airman Hal Jordan and his fitness for duty. It says, Airman Jordan is without question the most naturally gifted pilot I have ever known. The issue is his refusal to use lethal force during enemy engagements. While this refusal would normally result in grounding and possible court-martial, the usual reasons or motivations don't apply. Now, the usual reasons and motivations in this case and in this era tend to be, if I had this written down, um, fear and religion, um, neither of which applies to Hal Jordan. He is famously the man without fear, and he's not, you know, a Quaker or Anabaptist or any of those Christian sects that preach pacifism. Um, Hal Jordan's actually Jewish. <laughs> um, um, and to continue on with this, it says, Airman Jordan has shown bravery and courage under fire, unlike any I have witnessed during my 14 months in Korea. During enemy engagements, he continually puts himself in harm's way, baiting enemy pilots and drawing them into position for his squadron mates' guns. Um, and this is one of the things that I found very interesting and where he really deviates from Desmond Doss, not just in the fact that he's not a medic. Um, this is also not World War II. Um, right. <laughs> exactly. But, That's what we say. It's a World War II medic compared to a Korean or a Korean War pilot. Korean War airman. Yeah. Um, but while Howells refuses to use lethal force, unlike Desmond Doss, he has absolutely no issue if someone else does the lethal force. Right. Um, which really juxtaposes in a very interesting way with a different quote, um, specifically from Hal Jordan, when he is fighting for his life um, against a Korean soldier who is not aware that the war is over. He says, but I've never felt I owe my country the lives of others. I had sworn to serve my country in every way I can, but one, I have not killed for my country. And it really does make the question to me, like, what do you classify? Is, like, is that accessory to killing? Um, like, how, what are you talking about? Well, see, that's <laughs> kind of how I thought too. And I know we, it's like the whole Desmond Doss situation is that for anybody who does not know, Desmond Doss was a World War II medic um in the in the or in the pacific front um but he was mainly known and why he's known so much is he is the first ever medic soldier that was a conscientious objector objector um, um he is um there is an excellent film um called hacksaw ridge which is the desmond doss story um it is rated r for a reason um if you are not comfortable with gore do not watch it yeah, exactly. um do not watch it um warning you now yeah um it is excellent though there's also a book um it's a popular history book um very easy read um a little bit easier on the stomach than hacksaw ridge if you're sensitive to those things um both of which will give you the whole desmond doss story um but he desmond doss would never have you know intentionally that, right <laughs> like i think um, he was he was against death in general um, he was against suffering. He was against death. 
whereas Hal seems to be more, um, or at least how he's described in this comic is very much, as long as I'm not doing it. Right. Um, but it's like you said, the whole thing of him possibly being court-martialed, this, that was something Desmond did face because he objected to carrying a rifle with him in battle. And it was the whole thing of, it was new because nobody really would go into battle without carrying something on them to protect themselves. But it was the whole thing of, that's what happened to Desmond. He was court-martialed and he he barely survived getting through it, but it was the whole point. Everybody was pretty much against him. And mm -hmm. until we got into the battles that they faced in and everything like that. But I kind of thought the same thing too. It's like, okay, you don't kill people, but you let your teammates do it. And that's where I understand like Desmond's whole story was, I want to do my part in helping the country because I don't, it's pretty much like he didn't like the bullies. He didn't like certain countries taking over, which is a good point. But you're okay with killing other people, killing, but you're not okay with killing people. Now, mind you, there is a scene that I love in that as he does what I found different is that he actually saved an enemy soldier. Yes, um, which was a, rel a relatively big part of Desmond Doss's story is that his care extended not just to his allies, but also to his enemies. Yeah. Um, very much the definition of love thy neighbor, even when your neighbor hates you. Yeah. And that was one of my favorite scenes in the movie Hacksaw Ridge. I've watched it. I enjoyed it. Um, it was it was that scene where you he goes into these rat holes that they had, um, which were pretty much tunnels for the Japanese army to move faster and move quicker in the flanks and everything like that. But he goes into these one of these rat holes to protect himself from any enemy incoming. And he sees this wounded soldier and he's freaking out. And then yet he's like, shh, and he saves him. <laughs> And it's such an interesting part. And that was the difference. That's the only way where I was like, this is a stretch because Hal Jordan did kill somebody. To yes, he did. Um, and, and that's part of what he's talking about here with his moral codes and grand posturing, which it really is posturing. If he has no issue being what directly leads to someone else's death, it is posturing. It's not really a moral code at that point. It's just he doesn't want to be the one to do it, but he doesn't object to it. Um. And where he does kill someone, he tries not to. Um, but as he says, the Korean words wouldn't come to him. Um, and so there's this amazing scene where he's talking with Lois Lane, who has a camera pointed in his face, um, trying to get him to tell her more about what just happened and how he feels to have just escaped death. And all he can repeat to her is what he was trying to say to the Korean soldier that he had to kill to save his own life. Um, and he says, talks to her in Korean. She says, huh? And the pilot of the helicopter that they're in says, it's Korean. He said, it's over. Um, and this is, again, just one of those things where, like, what does it all mean at this point? Um, it's, we're really looking at the traumatic reality of the war. We're looking at what it means psychologically to take a life. We are looking at how do moral codes that are applicable in peacetime translate to conflict? How do they translate to battle? Um, and just what can the idolization of service not prepare you for? Um, especially in a culture that refuses to talk about the after effects. It, it is a very, very great topic to bring up there. And I think doing it in the story and it might be in like the slimmest glimpse that you see this happen 
but it is it's one of those little slim glimpses that actually leave a powerful statement and that's what i love about it. and i'm glad you brought that up really well on that end because so it is a very good point to bring up the whole hal jordan situation during korean or during the korean and, 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 and looking to now at um the war reporting um now this is this is where i have to say the comic is not accurate but the comic is also not based on our earth yeah, <laughs> it's um, one, I think, to be exact, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Um, now, it does show um, Lois being a war reporter. Um, Lois is also an army brat, canonically. Um, her father, as we all know, is, is a very important man. <laughs> <laughs> and um, But what we really see in, in this comic is um, some very inaccurate um, depictions of a war correspondent in 1953 in Korea. Um, and there is a big change in war reporting from World War II to Korea. Um, so while what Lois is doing might be a little bit more accurate to um, World War II reporting, it's not the most accurate for 1953. Um, and in part, this is because reporters, you know, they're tasked with finding the truth. They're tasked with reporting what is actually happening. Um, which in a war like Korea, which, you know, um, isn't being fought for any grand moral purpose other than we don't want this country to become communist, um, and which is really a proxy war with another country, America doesn't necessarily have the biggest stake in the game. Um, we're choosing to get into this conflict because we're decided to become interventionists and not because, you know, we were attacked or um, one of our allies was attacked. Um, we just decided to jump in feet first in conflict halfway across the world shortly after we had just finished another war. <laughs> um, like right after we had finally switched all of our production back, they're like, no, we're going to go back to war again. Um, Interesting move, for sure. Um, but American reporters were talking about losses. And U.S. government did not like that. Um, they wanted no accurate war reporting. They didn't want the American people to know or our enemies to know how many, what our losses were. Um, Especially because this, you know, was a war that was being fought as a proxy battle. Um, it wasn't, you couldn't really be said that they were fighting in defense of our country. Uh, we haven't been attacked. Um, and this breaks, becomes, leads to this great breakdown of um, the journalistic relationship with the U.S. military. Um, and this directly leads to the relationship between journalists and the military in the Vietnam War. Um, this is the breakdown of trust that leads to that push for live footage from Vietnam. Because what the military does is they start redacting reports to journalists. They start denying them press privilege. They, um, at some point, just start giving them entirely blacked out documents and saying, there, report on this, basically. We're not gonna give you anything. Um, and by the time 1953 rolls around, that's what's happening is journalists aren't being given pretty much any information about what's happening boots on the ground in the Korean conflict. Um, 
So as great, cool as it is to see Lois in this position, as I talked about earlier, it's just, it just wouldn't be happening at this point in the war, especially when the war is over. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, um, wouldn't be happening. And this plays to a little bit of that role with um, McCarthyism. Um, criticism of the war in Korea was a direct attack on um, American values. Um, and we see people being arrested for criticizing the conflict and criticizing the government's actions in the conflict. Um, and also, you know, reporters could possibly bring up, you know, that we were some places we said we weren't going to be, mm -hmm. uh, much like we did in Vietnam. Um, so it's, it's just, it just wouldn't happen um, like that. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Love to see, love to see Lois winning. Um, do do wish we got a little, a little more accuracy in terms of the deterioration of journalistic <laughs> relations, but you know what happens. Yeah, it's totally agreeable there. So I think this is a good point where we can move from the Korean War to the next part of the Cold War that we're going to discuss, or the last part, really, the Cold War. Or not the Cold War, the space race, I was going to say. The space race. Um, this one, this is going to be a little bit longer, uh, just because there is just so much about the space race in this comic. Um, and the space race is on several different fronts in this comic. So the space race, again, just to give you guys a little bit of a recap, um, it's the post-World War II competition between the USA and the USSR to achieve superior spaceflight capabilities. Um, this culminates... Uh, I'm not going to say it culminates in because, again, that was just a major U.S. victory, um, but the most famous aspect of the space race is, for sure, the 1969 moon landing. Um, the U.S. putting man on the moon before the Russians could um, is definitely one of the biggest and most notable um, moments in the space race, um, and just, you know, for humankind in general, um, but definitely the Americans appreciated it a little bit more during this um, international no arms conflict. Um, now, the three ways that the space race is really portrayed in this comic, um, one of which you actually, um, not technically space race, but it does influence it in many ways, um, is the UFO craze in the post-war period, uh, which I'm going to talk about in um, pretty significant detail because it directly relates to um, John, um, who is one of the main parts of this comic and one of my favorite characters ever. Um, we also see private industry feeding into um, what will become NASA and um, also death in the space race is vitally important. Um, and there is a pretty large scene with that. But first, we have to talk about the UFO craze because it, it does start in the United States, at least in about 1947. So almost immediately after the Second World War. And this, of course, is kickstarted in the post-war period by the incident in Roswell, New Mexico, um, which really starts the Area 51 craze. Um, for those of you who remember the Invade Area 51 meme, this is why. <laughs> um, and it really sparks these thoughts of a government awareness of extraterrestrial life. Um, and that awareness and this conspiracy is shown explicitly in the special and in issues two, four, and five. <laughs> so over half of this comic um, really deals heavily with the UFO craze. 
Um, and Jaan's arc in this comic really straddles the line between the space race and the civil rights movement, which we're going to talk about next. Yeah, so. um, and one of the things, um, I think I mentioned this to Brandon literally as soon as we were talking about talking about the space race, is there are some great similarities between Jaan's portrayal in this comic and actual post-war media from the 1950s and 60s. Um, and so we see John's methods of learning about Earth culture and what it means to be an American, um, as well as his particular particular texture and shade of green in this comic, um, are actually pulled from a very popular 1950s and 60s children's cartoon that I was raised on <laughs> called <laughs> The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle and Friends. Um, the scene that I pulled for this um, is specifically from season one, episode 20, um, Summer Squash, or He's Too Flat for Me, um, where the main characters of the show, um, who are Bullwinkle and Rocky, um, Bullwinkle is a moose, uh, Rocky is a flying squirrel, and they are both talking, um, and this season of the show is all about the space race. There are two moon men that have um, landed on Earth after being trained on how to be an Earth person on the moon by being forced to ride um, fake subway cars and deal with small talk and just general things that you would really see on like American television in this time. You know, the classic scenes of like men on the subway and everything. Um, but Rocky and Bullwinkle are trying to get Gidney and Cloyd, who are the moon men, back onto the moon where they want to go home much like John wants to return to Mars um, by teaching him how to be Americans so they can be the first Americans on the moon. <laughs> um, excellent show, by the way. Um, it's a very fun parody of the Cold War. Um, it's a children's show that's meant for adults to enjoy. Um, definitely pushed some bounds with McCarthyism, but it did start coming out in like 1959. So it's a little bit after that period where they can start making fun of it now. <laughs> um, but um, Rocky and Bullwinkle teach Gidney and Cloyd how to be Americans through the use of American pop culture. Um, funny enough, Bullwinkle um, uses his comic book collection to help teach the moon men how to be Americans. Um, and... <laughs> We see John learning how to be an American by watching television, um, which it's it's very good. Um, but the similarities were too much for me to ignore. Um, again, with actual post-war media from this time that addresses the space race. Um, now we're gonna have um, a clip, I own this on DVD. So I did screen record a section that has the moon men in it that shows Rocky and Bullwinkle sort of being like, oh, we're gonna teach you how to be an American with XYZ. We're gonna have that in a link um, where you guys can access that. Um, right, do you have the clip for you where you can actually see the, the exact same shade of green and texture as Jaan as are on Gidney and Cloyd. Um, But yeah, so that's one of those very interesting things. And this is another moment where in learning about how to be an American through um, the media in the 1950s, we really do see John's story intersect with the civil rights movement yet again, um, because not only is he aware that his appearance, unlike Superman's, is going to be jarring to the American public and they're going to react with fear and derision, but through watching the media, he learns that what is considered good is 
you know, a white cop at a time where we know what's happening with the civil rights movement. Um, we are aware of the abject police brutality happening all over the country. Um, and yet through watching the news media of the time, you would have no concept of that, um, which is a huge part of John's story, especially when we see him now portrayed in modern comics as a black man. Um, and that's one of those things where looking at the media that he had access to coming to earth in this time period, it's very different. Um, and learning how to be an American through that is just a huge part of his narrative. And it's why he seems so corny and other to um, his co-workers at the GCPD. Uh, but this brings us to private industry, which is also in many ways connected to the UFO craze. Um, if, you know, reports from government whistleblowers are anything to be believed. <laughs> um, but government cooperation with private industry was a huge factor in the space race. Um, so the government would choose private industries to serve as fronts for space technology initiatives. Um, and of course, bringing this back to Carol, Ferris Aircraft is one of these businesses that are chosen um, in the DC Comics universe. So we see how Jordan say, I didn't realize Ferris was an Air Force facility. And Colonel Flagg says, well, for this project, and as far as you need know, that's exactly what it is, young captain. Miss Ferris may run the facility, but this project is Air Force all the way. Are you reading me, Jordan? Um, and then we see later where um, Hal is being informed more on, you know, the space race itself. Um, it was decided that America would begin work on a secret means of conveyance to space. National security was priority one, so it was decided to use a private company as a front for the operation. Um, and this is exactly true. They would pick different, typically aeronautic companies because, you know, flying have to go up to get to space, right? Um, <laughs> so I'm told. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, that is... It made sense um, and they would use these companies not just to help get the costs not necessarily completely in the government's pocket again we had just fought a massive war and we're coming out of the great depression um but also um it allowed national security to have a front so that it wasn't just the government that was going to be in danger and that private industry also had to front, front the bill for security against spies during this McCarthy period. Um, but in with this, you know, private corporations were also seeing space tests, um, which are being run typically in secret. Um, a lot of people who were experiencing space tests, um, typically pilots, um, had no idea <laughs> what was going. They thought they were developing new planes. Um, just really strange tests for the development of this new technology. Um, we see how Jordan having these. Um, so there's one where he's writing a letter to his brother and we see him in a big tank um, with a bungee cord. Um, and he says, I hit Mach 3 last week for the first time. Dang, Jim, what a feeling. I pulled a wide arc up on the edge of the atmosphere and the sunlight was tearing holes in the sky, giving me this fleeting view of the dark blanket of stars that lay beyond. Uh, we also see the scientists that are checking his results, um, making sure that, you know, he's still alive um, and that he's not, you know, dying, that they haven't ruptured anything important with the force of these tests and him, you know, hitting Mach 3 and being submerged in great pressure. So six trips are two more than anyone else has made. I think we have everything we need. 
Um, so these tests are often being done without the full awareness of the participants to determine not just what is needed to go to space, but also who will be a good candidate for the space program, which Hal is crushed to find out is not him. It, you know, that's why I said that scene alone, I know we're going to kind of talk about that, but that was such a that was such a messed up scene to see how this guy that only wants to explore the stars, it's the American dream for him to experience something like that, and it's shut down quick. Yes. Um, and he's shut down not just because he can't work with Colonel Flagg, um, because the two don't get on. Um, again, this is one of the things that disappointed me a little bit um, with Hal's arc regarding the U.S. military is that he is not dishonorably discharged in New Frontier, which is a pretty big part of his character in the greater DC universe. Um, I feel doesn't get talked about as often as it should be and the ramifications of that. Um, but we also see him being turned down because they want him to chase down Ja'an. Okay. Um, again, this still harkens back to that UFO craze where the national paranoia about alien life is not just affecting the government, but it's also impacting private industry and citizens. And then, but the space race, of course, is not without loss. And this, this is where um, we see, I can't remember her name off the top of my head. Um, it's... She's part of the suicide squad. I know that much. But yeah, know she is. Um, she ends up being on the space flight with Colonel Flagg, um, which goes horribly wrong. Um, and now, while the most famous loss of life in space is the explosion of the Challenger um, in the 1980s, there was a earlier loss of life in space um, it's the X-15 Flight 191, which is the death of Michael Adams, who was posthumously awarded um, for his flight because he did break into the atmosphere. And it's this that is referenced in, um, what issue is that? Let me see here. Um, it's, uh, issue number four. There we go, yeah. Um, and we see, and again, this is what I was talking about too, within the feminism with the characters that aren't as heavily focused on where you see her not just as the scientist in this role that you see her as, is like this hard ass um, who hasn't strict adherence to military policy and following orders, but she's a painter. Um, you see her as a whole person with hopes and dreams and interpersonal relationships and a painting that she did of her and Colonel Flagg looking up to the stars is part of her funeral. Um, and that's, again, just such a big part of this is that human life was lost in the space race, which is often forgotten about, especially on the American front, um, because we were a little less risky compared to the USSR when it came to sending life into space. Um, but it is just one of those things um, where you can't talk about the space race without talking about the loss of human life because it is one of those moments in scientific history where to ignore it is to do a disservice to those who worked so hard to achieve what we now know is the miracle of space flight. It, it is such a major point. And that's why I said that I love that the space race plays a huge part of this story. 
Um, because not only that, that's when we get the introduction of Hal Jordan getting his rink. And this is where we get Martian yes. Manhunter coming to the world. Um, there is so much, and even then too, there's so much history that's behind it. Like we hear about Sputnik, and Sputnik is a real thing that did happen where Russia launched a satellite, I believe, right up above, what was it, just right above, I think it was right above Earth's orbit. And it was pretty revolutionary because it was the first time something like that happened. And then we try to, of course, go more and more further to try to beat them. And it's like you said, we were less risky compared to what USSR was. And it is... And part of that, too, um, has to do with our leadership and our leadership's approach to um, the the value of our citizens' lives. Um, can't can't say um, many glowing reviews of yeah. the leadership of the USSR at this time. Yeah. Well, because, yeah, um, even if you look at World War II and see what they did to their people, too, and the fact being that you know, a lot of people forget about this, but this was a real thing. If you were even caught retreating during a battle, you were shot. You, it was like, it was like illegal to run back and coward away. You want to fight for your country? You're going to fight right there and you're not going to retreat. And if you were caught retreating. Um, soldier, some soldiers, um, especially officers, their families would be sent to prison camps to encourage them to do well in battle. Um, horrifying history. Um yeah. That is viewer discretion advice if you decide to investigate that a little bit. But yes, um, do, do be warned. Horrifying. Yes. Um, history is not always pleasant. Um, in many cases, it is the exact opposite. Um, but it's what helps inform our current understanding, and it's vital to learn. Um, but just just do go in prepared with some topics. And I think that's a good point where we can move to probably one of the most different stories in the in the new frontier and it's um, more self-contained than yeah. the others as well. yes it's not and what i mean yeah that's a great point to bring out. i didn't mean different but i'm meaning it's outside what's really happening um or not really outside but it's more the it's in a whole different city it's in a whole different state than everything else is going on it's its own self-contained story and i feel like that's also part of the beauty of that narrative in with um this comic so what we're about to talk about is john henry and the fact that it is kept so separate really speaks to the segregation of the united states at this point in time and before we get into this section though uh, mary and i will be kind of going back and forth on this but we want to advise that this is where we say viewer discretion is advised this is a very violent scene when we first see him um, we will talk about things that are very uncomfortable in some ways um, because we do have to tell you what has happened and talk about the history behind that as well and where it leads to and i will say this right now i remember watching an interview with darwin cook and dave stewart um there's more Dave Stewart, but it was more him saying when they were writing this scene, Darwin Cook was actually going to cut this. And it was so interesting to read this because this is probably one of the most influential scenes in the whole story. And the fact being that it, you know, of course, we're talking about John Wilson or John Henry, who's an African-American vigilante, or in this case, that's what he's considered, um, that he takes pretty much when his I guess we can go ahead and talk about it before we get into it. Um, one of the main things, so I kind of got some notes here and I'll kind of talk about his story a bit in the, in the book. Um, John Wilson is a veteran of the Korean War, um, loving wife and child with him and employed, and he's pretty much employed as a local machine in a local machine shop. Um, 
pretty much his life changed in an instant. Now, mind you, he lived in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, this is where it's like Mary said earlier with the Jim Crow laws that you hear about. And this is where you get the Klan coming in to terrorize African-Americans. Um, this uh, I'd also like to point out that while the Jim Crow South is definitely some of the strongest cases for um, explicitly racist laws in the United States, that they existed all over the country yeah. um, in the North as well as in the South. Right. Um, but Jim Crow South is definitely what we are talking about here with the rise of the Ku Klux Klan and all of that. Just felt the need to point that out. Now, in this story, though, um, this is where we, again, this is why we said viewer discretion is advised. Um, we are introduced to John Wilson lynched on the ground. Um, he has a noose around his neck, everything, um, as he watches the house that his wife and kid are in burning down to the ground. And it is such a tragic scene, but this this is history. This did happen. This is stuff that did happen. And I think, Mary, you brought up a great point before we even got in this section, is that not all history is pleasant. Not all sure. history is something we want to hear about. <clears throat> but the purpose of history is, especially for us who are, well, I'm an up-and-coming teacher, you are a teacher, the purpose of history is so it never happens again. And that's our, and I know some things really can get to a point where it's gruesome, especially in this story, but it does show you what African-Americans really went through. And, and one thing, one thing that I talked to when I talked to my students about issues, um, especially with racism in the past, um, is that they are allowed to be angry about it. Um, history is not something that we should just observe objectively. Um, every narrative that you read is subjective. There is no really such thing as an objective history. Um, you are allowed and encouraged to feel things about the past. That's how we learn from it. Um, if what you are reading does not inspire an emotion within you, I would ask, suggest that you read more about it. Right. Um, so in with that, like, obviously, viewer discretion advice. This is not an easy narrative. Um, but I, I would encourage all of you to feel about this narrative while you also think about it. Now, I want to talk about something else too, because this story pretty much leads to him becoming a vigilante at this point, taking down the clan, facing them. And he, I think he, they said in the book, he killed about two or three clan members in the process, um, but scared pretty much all of them off in some ways um, until he does meet his eventual death. Um, which we will talk about shortly because there is a great um, little memorial to him on TV. And I really love that scene um, talking about what we should be doing instead of doing things like this. But something else I know Mary and I really want to discuss first before we get more into that is his dialogue. Um, it is, and I will quote from the Black Label in his annotations um, for Darwin Cook, most of his, most of his internal dialogue is the ballad of John Henry. And it's so and it's a few different versions yeah. of the ballad of John Henry. Yeah, it states here, um, what was it according to the annotations in Darwin Cook, any effort to institute the DCU into the real world, it's called the ballad of John Henry. It's in the back, it's on I can't even don't even have the page number here, but um it pretty much states any effort to insinuate or insinuate the DCU into the real world of the 1950s wouldn't have been complete without looking at the civil rights issues of the day. The problem was DC carded 
or catered the white to white culture. And there were very few black characters to explore this theme. Um, but my main point, what we're going to try to do here, I'm trying to find that note here. I did have it here. Um, doo -doo -doo. Okay, it says here, John's narrative is a mixture of three versions of an old folk song, but several new verses by myself to describe the story action. So he does influence it, but most of the internal monologue is the ballad of John Henry. So Mary, maybe you can explain this too. Who is John Henry? In so John Henry, um, a lot of us know him as an American folk hero. Um, he's typically described in discussions along with, you know, Paul Bunyan. Um, I've even seen Betsy Ross included in this sort of conversation of these mythic American figures. Um, but John Henry um, has always been one of my personal favorites. Um, because his narrative is entirely about strength of character and strength of person. Um, John Henry in the folk stories and in the folk songs is a working man who works on the railroad and he, he drives spikes. Mythically, he is born with a hammer in his hand um, with which he works all day and all night. John Henry is a steel driving man as the narrative goes. Um, and that is most of what people learn about John Henry um, as a child because the, the narrative does get quite dark as well because um, the narrative is also about the reality of Black Americans in history, um, which means it is not always pleasant. Um, it can be about strength of character and strength of person, but it's also about strength in the face of adversity, which is what is really at the heart of the John Henry narrative. Like, what was it? And also, too, I want to talk about John Henry's design. Now, a lot of people think, oh, his design, when he comes on straight up with this, with the suit that he wears, it scares you. Like, I'm not going to lie. When I first saw it, I was like, wow, that is such a strong statement just by the picture alone. And now, mind you, he does state this here. Um, what was it? And I'm going to kind of go over his hammers because he has two wielding hammers, pretty much. Same thing you would still drive um, nails in. Um, he does state um, in the same little annotation, he writes, when it came to design, the hammers were a given. After a couple of dreadful attempts on the costume, it occurred to me that the answer was staring me right in the face. John Henry's enemies were wear, wear white hoods. You know? I thought he would wear a black hood. And and he goes on, the hood is or cinched by the noose that or they use to try to kill him. And its design borrows heavily from the Hubert villain, the hooded hangman from the pages of Enemy Ace. That design alone, I am not gonna lie, was probably one of my favorite designs in the comic. Just because oh, it was just so it stands out. It really does. And just to see, you know, of course, like, you know, of course, it looks like the clan at that time strikes again. But just seeing that behind him, like, you're not going to continue doing this. It's just a strong statement. That whole scene where you see him pounding the hammers into place, doing all this is just a strong statement. And I'm so happy that Cook still kept this in the story, because I think it's like he says, the whole point is, is that you couldn't talk about this time frame without talking about the civil rights movement. Now, granted, it's outside the main story, but it does hit on that point really well. Yes. And also, I think 
something that I picked up on just from um, as a result of studying as much history as I had to in my coursework, um, executioner's hoods mm -hmm. are black. Yes. Um, and that was one of the first things I picked up with um, John Henry's design is that in many ways he is executing the clan for um, their lynching of his people. Um, if he says, if you are going to extrajudiciously murder my family, I'm going to do the same for you. And I think the best way to, or what was it? it there is an interview, or not so much an interview, but there is like a, a guy, like I wouldn't say an anchor, but a guy that comes on TV and talks about John Wilson's death. Um, and of course, like we said, he is killed by the Klan, unfortunately, near the end of it all. But I want to kind of read these pages because I think this is an important fact. And mind you, some of it is gruesome the way he talks, but it gets to a good point at the very end of the story of, of his little monologue here. You know, of course, he says, good evening. Welcome to another edition of The Big Picture. Tonight, we bring you a shocking story, a murderous persecution of one man's struggle against the forces of tyranny. Try to imagine living in a place where an unknown group of terrorists dictate right and wrong. These local warlords operate with impunity, or impunity and at times are supported by the local government. If you were to fall out of their favor, they, they and they alone would decide your fate. Imagine living in a place where innocent people are dragged from their beds in the night, where women and children are killed as easily as the men who suppose, who oppose these terrorists. Three nights ago in the lawless land I speak of, these terrorists caught up with a man they had been hunting for months. He was a man that feared greatly because he had stood against their fascist rule, his rule, or sorry there, his followers had begun to see him as a symbol of hope. He was beaten and humiliated, then hung from a post in the town square and burned alive. Um, what godless land allows this, you ask communist Russia, red China, perhaps Turkey? It happened here in America. Tennessee, to be precise. The man they killed was named John Wilson. The reason you've never heard about the reason you've never heard about it is because John Wilson is black. And the fight against communism goes unabated or on unabated. America carries the fight for freedom to the four corners of the world, and yet it's unable to guarantee basic civil liberties and safety to millions of its own people. It is such a statement, and he goes on to say more. Um, he does go over some of John Wilson's passes when we find out he is a Korean War veteran. He is this, but again, it's another guy who came and served his country. He was a hero. He was all this. He came back just to be terrorized. And, and that is so often the narrative that we're seeing for non-white Americans in this time period where they were subject to the draft, but they came back after fighting for their country just to be lynched for standing up for themselves and for wearing their uniforms in many cases. Um, as though the idea that they were fine to be cannon fodder, but if they took pride in their service, um, they no longer deserve to put on the uniform of their country. And it is a true statement. It's also, yeah, it's also worth noting um, that that TV broadcast is directed um, towards white Americans because that those are who is not hearing about this. Um, talking about lynching had been absolutely um, not off bounds out of bounds for non-white americans um one of the most popular songs um 
it's recorded in 1939 is Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit, which is entirely about lynching in the United States and the Jim Crow South. Um, there are songs, folk songs being sung throughout the South and in the Appalachian region like Tennessee, um, Where Did You Sleep Last Night, that are about this narrative as well. Um, it is white Americans who are not hearing about the civil rights movement because they're the ones who need to be informed of their own prejudice. And see, what I love next is, I'm not gonna go over like his history because like we said, we kind of gave you that, but there is something and I love the way they do it. And it's like you said, it is targeted to white or to white Americans because you see them in Metropolis and they're watching this statement. Um, Philadelphia, they have a, they're in a barbershop and, and of course they're African-Americans in there, but it's still the point that it shows that everybody is American. And I'm going to read this really quickly. And I think this is the best part to sum up what, why this is important, why John Wilson's story was important. And it really influences what happens in the 1960s and so on and so forth. Um, he continues pretty much in conclusion. He goes, black or white, John Wilson was an American. He fought for his country, he worked hard and never spent as much as a minute in jail. He went to church every Sunday. In return, his family was murdered and his life was stripped away from him. When he rose up and fought these enemies of freedom, he was hunted, captured, and burned to death. Tonight, my final thought is this. How can America hope to preserve freedom around the world when she can't even guarantee it to millions of her own children? And that ends that arc alone with John Wilson. And what, again, another powerful statement to end this section. And it is something that I feel does point people in the right direction to start having, or to everybody having the same freedoms, to having these rights just as much as white Americans do. Everybody deserves to have these rights. Um, I'm not going to lie. When I read that, I actually grew in tears a little bit because it is a true statement. It really is. Um, I didn't, when I first read this when I was younger, I never really took that into account. Now growing up as a kid and under, or as an adult and understanding what he's saying, it's like, that is such a powerful statement and such a good way to go out with it. And throughout the comic as well, um, we don't get this as much until issue, um, you know, four and five and six, we see John being considered crazy for caring about civil rights by his colleagues in the GCPD. And we see the civil rights movement being addressed, not just for black Americans, but also for indigenous Americans. Mm -hmm. um, not to the same extent, there isn't, you know, a John Henry John Wilson narrative for indigenous Americans in this. Um, and the comic ends before we could get to, you know, the occupation of Alcatraz in 1969 but we do still see racism directed at indigenous Americans and their treatment where regardless of if they put on the uniform, when they return, they're considered lesser and no longer American. Um, we do see these issues presented in the comic. Now, this is, that's where we're going to end this part of the section. I think this is a very popular book. This is, if you don't read this for anything else, I would recommend leading this part of it because this does leave a very impactful story. And that's why I said originally Darwin Cook was going to cut this out because it was the whole thing of, does it fit? Am I doing it justice? Am I doing something right? And Dave Stewart was the one to save it. And he told him, you better put this in because at this point, if you don't, then you're not getting the whole point of the history behind it. And it's like Mary said perfectly, 
Not all history is pleasant. It's a matter of we have to learn from it and move forward and make sure it never happens again. And that's our job as history, a becoming history teacher and a teacher and herself. That's our job. And that's why it was such a passion project of ours to bring this because it was such an amazing thing to talk about. But the way to end this is the very final pages of the story. Um, it's called Epilogue, and it is pretty much a famous speech um, by JFK. Um, this is during his inaugural um, speech when he was inducted, or what was it? What was it? Pretty much when he was sworn in as president. And it's called the New Frontier for a reason. And it, I'm not going to read everything on this, but this alone does encap encapsulate what this story really is. Um, I remember they said this is where they kind of started, and that's where they moved on with the story was this originally. And then this is how he felt the ending should be, is the JFK speech. And um, pretty much, you know, what was it? It, it, it's just an amazing story. The panels alone to explain this, just the way he's talking, is just powerful and impactful. Uh, Mary, what did you take away from JFK's speech, The New Frontier, in this story? I mean, so much of it with the epilogue specifically, it's about a new dawn for America in the wake of all of the progress, um, the unrest that has been happening. Um, it's a way of moving through the Cold War, but also, um, I mean, we know JFK as a progressive president. He he kind of disrupts um, the status quo of the 1950s in so many ways. Um, and that's really what's happening here, not just with the heroes, but I mean, with American history in general, the 60s ushers in a new wave of culture, of counterculture. Um, and we're seeing a new wave of heroes that are insisting on continuing on with or without government approval because it's determined that the world needs them regardless of whether or not the US government agrees. Um, and it's sort of ushering in and sort of referencing in many ways, you know, the Justice League as um, like a counterculture movement of their own um, where what the world, what the American people need is, you know, um, people that are willing to help regardless of politics. As, as it says, um, the times are too grave, the challenge too urgent, and the stakes too high to permit the customary passions of political debate. Um, and what it goes out of its way to show is, you know, just all of these different characters that and characters that we come to know and love, I mean, we see John Henry Irons um, in front of John Wilson's grave reading a comic book. And we know that John, you know, we know that John Henry Irons grows up to become <laughs> Steel. He grows up to be this incredibly successful businessman who works in a field adjacent to John Wilson's. Um, we see real life historical figures and stand-ins for people that may, might have existed. Um, being used as inspiration for the next generation, which is really what this is about. It's looking to the past and learning from it is really what this speech is about. Right. And like, and I was actually, that was going to be my next point. So you get to see John Henry Iron sitting in front of the headstone of John Wilson. And then you also get to see Rick Flagg Jr., which his dad was the astronaut that passes away in the explosion that, um, that Superman tried to save. And it is such a powerful statement. And 
the fact that what I love this speech too is that he's trying to like prepare him that this is a new frontier, but we're also going into the unknown in certain situations. And the fact being is that we have to stay positive and we have to stay true to be successful. And that's what I love about this whole thing. And I think each panel tells that story perfectly. Um, one of my favorite ones is the space one. And you have um, Adam Strange, you have Green Lantern, you have the Doom Patrol, the Metal Men. You have all these great characters to show this is the new frontier. This is where they're going. And you have the Young at Heart, which is the Teen Titans. You have all these characters that really demonstrate a lot of things that we could see. One of, one of the things that really strikes me um, is that in with the Teen Titans is that you're not just seeing Teen Titans. You're also seeing Supergirl. You're seeing... Um, and the fun, the hysterical thing here is that because of how Silver Age Green Arrow is, you can't tell if that's Roy Harper or if that's Green Arrow standing behind Black Canary. <laughs> um, and there was actually a moment in with this that I wanted to talk about just very briefly, too, because um, it's not very often that you see depictions of the Green Arrow speedy dynamic outside of the Silver Age, because, I mean, Roy was introduced in the 1950s. Um, and then he and Ollie sort of part ways in 1971. So it's not an overabundant amount of years of comics and they don't really tend to reprint or rewrite stories of the Green Arrow Speedy dynamic with Roy. Um, we get Mia later in 2001, but it's not the same. Um, and there is a scene where we see Green Arrow and Speedy together and true to the comics, Roy is waiting in the car. <laughs> um, which I, I, it's just one of those things where we tend to think of the hero sidekick dynamic a certain way, mm -hmm. um, but Green Arrow just doesn't comply with that. Um, Roy, nine times out of 10, is the getaway driver who is not allowed to fight. Um, and it was just one of those little Easter egg things um, that when I was reading through, I was like, oh, hey, that's right. <laughs> um, and it's one of those things too, where like the young at heart and like, how do we usher in youth how do we usher in new ideas um especially when the old guard um is no longer in place uh, and this is forming a justice league after the jsa has been out of service for years um what does this new guard look like and it it was such a powerful way to end the story and but this will end our very first segment of History Through Comics. And we hope you enjoyed. Let us know what you feel, what you learned from it, what you didn't like, maybe some, even some notes that maybe we could have considered while reading this story. Um, please let us know in the comments. Um, what was it? And you can find Comic Talkers anywhere on Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts to listen to the podcast. And you can find us also on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok um, at Comic Talkers to get all the new updates. Um, you'll get to hear Mary talk a little bit, have some fun with it. You're going to hear myself talk about some different things. So tune in for a lot more, um, a lot more content coming out soon. And without further ado, my name is Brandon. And I'm Mary. And let comics always be the top of your discussion. <laughs>